From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Until recently, only police officers or family members could ask a judge to take someone's guns away if they feared they were a threat to themselves or others. A state law has expanded who can request that, but is it making a difference? I read all the cases filed statewide, all the red flag cases, and I only found a single one that was filed by one of these professional groups under the new law. And later, she's known as the blind history lady. And she spent years researching the stories of visually impaired people here in Colorado, the challenges they face and the contributions they've made. We're studied for our medical conditions always, but we're rarely studied for what we have accomplished. And to know our history is important to have role models. Which she hopes will come out of her research. I donated my beat-up car to Colorado Public Radio. It made no more sense to repair it again. I didn't think I'd get anything for it on the market, so I was very impressed when I found out the amount it received at auction. CPR's vehicle donation program gets several calls a day from donors wondering if non-runners are accepted. The answer is yes. Totaled or non-working cars sell at auction, and the proceeds support CPR. Get started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado's teachers, doctors, social workers, and others have an official new role to play in the state's fight against gun violence. These professionals can now file red flag petitions asking the courts to disarm people if they fear that person could hurt someone or themselves with a gun. CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kinney has been looking into how that change to the state law is working out so far. And from what I understand, he's found it's already raising some big questions. Andy, welcome. Hi, Chandra. Andy, you've done a ton of reporting on the state's extreme risk protection order, also known as ERPO or the red flag law. But if we're going to talk about how the law is changing, let's start with just explaining the basics. Always a good idea. Colorado first introduced the idea of red flags in this state with the law back in 2019. They're in use in about 20 states overall, so it's not unique to Colorado. But the idea is that the law allows judges to ban somebody from having guns, take away the guns if they are a threat to themselves or others. And initially in Colorado, these kinds of red flag cases could get started in two different ways. The police could initiate them. If a cop saw a person they thought was dangerous, they could go to court and file the paperwork to take the person's guns away. The other route was just an ordinary person could file that same paperwork. But the catch was you could only do that as an ordinary person if you had kind of a close personal relationship with the respondent, the person whose guns you're trying to take away. You could ask for guns to be taken away from a family member, a roommate, etc., And once that paperwork's filed, civil court judges look at the cases and they decide whether to issue that red flag gun ban for anywhere from two weeks to a year at a time. And that's how it worked at first. Got it. So why did the law change this year? Well, we did a big project and we found that the law had been used something like 400 times and resulted in close to a couple hundred gun removal orders for everything from mass shooting threats to suicide threats. 
but that number was actually pretty low compared to other states, including red ones like Florida. So this year, Democrats in Colorado decided to expand the red flag law. They did that by allowing lots of new people to initiate the red flag process to file that paperwork I was talking about. And like you said earlier, so they added teachers, principals, doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, social workers, basically people who work in those industries can now ask judges to start that gun removal process. Why did they add all of those new people to the law? The idea is that these are people who are on the front lines of society in a way, like They are maybe a teacher who's hearing threats of a school shooting, or maybe they're a doctor who encounters a patient who seems to be really on the verge of a violent act. Or, you know, again, with the teacher, maybe they even hear that the student's parent could be dangerous in some way. And so the expanded law allows them to go, again, straight to the courts, not even involving police if they don't want to, and ask a judge to take action and disarm the person. So how is it working so far? Have we seen a lot of new cases? No. If you thought that teachers and nurses were spoiling for the chance to go to court and file these cases, they were not. The law went into effect toward the end of April. I read all the cases filed statewide, all the red flag cases over those next couple months, and I only found a single one that was filed by one of these professional groups under the new law. Wow. What does that number say to you? It seemed low. You know, you introduce these state laws and you expect uh, they have some effect. So I asked Representative Jennifer Bacon, a Democratic sponsor of the expanded law, if this was slower than she expected. And she said, uh, yeah, it was surprising to her as well. I didn't expect like the next day to be 2,000 more reports. You know, I don't know what I, I don't think I expected like none or just one, but I didn't necessarily expect a deluge. But like she pointed out, this is a very new law. Maybe it'll take some time. Maybe we'll see an uptick once school's back in session, for example. Just to help us understand how the new law might work, what happened in that one case you Ultimately, nothing. It was filed by a clinical social worker who was working as a co-responder with Lakewood Police. You know, it's like when they go out on calls alongside mm-hmm. police officers and they kind of offer like social services, mm-hmm. mental health help encountered a man who, from what I can tell, owned a rifle and a pistol. The social worker judged in his professional opinion that the guy was a threat, so he went to court to ask for the red flag order, but a judge kind of rejected it. Uh, The judge said that the guy with the guns wasn't actually an official client of the social worker, and so legally the social worker wasn't qualified in the end to ask for that red flag order. Wow. So it was rejected on a technicality and not because there was no concern. Yeah, like legally it didn't get far enough for the judge to ever really consider the merits of the case and consider whether the person with the guns was a threat or not. Lakewood police still could have sought the order. They had every right to go to court over the same case because cops have very strong rights to pursue red flag orders in this state. But they did not, at least as far as I could tell. Um, That may have been because they didn't think they had strong enough evidence. You know, it could have been that maybe the guy never actually made a direct threat. I didn't see any evidence in the paperwork that he ever said, I'm going to go and commit this violence. And, you know, it could be really subjective. Each police department, each judge can kind of have different approaches to this stuff, Chandra. Wow. It seems like this law can get complicated really quickly. So why would, say, a doctor or a teacher go through all of this trouble instead of just going to the police? 
That's a really good question. And I'm guessing that in a lot of situations, they probably do go to police and, you know, these cases end up being filed by police officers. But sometimes police departments we've found may not have the staffing. Maybe they don't even have the interest in pursuing these red flag cases. Some department's leadership is philosophically opposed to the idea of taking away people's guns. So in those cases, you know, this expanded law gives another option where, you know, if the cops aren't going to do it, then the teacher can do it almost as a backup. Here's Representative Bacon explained it. You know, I had an interest in being sure that those who were openly told by their law enforcement they wouldn't enforce this, that people feel like they now have access to these protective orders. And so I'm, you know, I think we're going to be keeping an eye on that. I want to also add that you hear a lot of criticism that this is opening the door for a whole new set of people to infringe on gun rights. You know, a teacher can ask a judge to take guns away again from a student's parents even. Um, that's, that is allowing civil courts to limit a person's Second Amendment rights. It is giving a little bit more power to teachers, doctors, whoever, to influence those Second Amendment rights. Yeah, and it seems like it adds a potential new big responsibility to professionals like teachers, social yeah. workers. How are hospitals and schools at, as institutions approaching this new red flag law? I should add that legally, there's no liability or responsibility, as far as I can tell, for any of these professionals to actually file these. It's just an option. And so far, it seems like the employers themselves are being pretty cautious in approaching this. They're not exactly embracing it. I found one hospital system that was planning to do some training around it, but others were perhaps not doing anything or were just distributing simple informational flyers. When I kind of surveyed a bunch of schools, I found that many of them also are not taking any action. Denver Public Schools said it was not doing any training or informational distribution on this kind of thing, same as one of the major school districts in Colorado Springs. So it seems like they're taking a hands-off approach so far. I should also add that the law allows district attorneys and the attorney general's office to file these kinds of petitions too, and I haven't seen that happen yet. And to clarify, the law also says if someone in one of those jobs, like a teacher or social worker, does not use the red flag law and something were to happen, they cannot be held liable, correct? Yeah, exactly. So is this law going to be a dud? Is the state (laughs) doing anything to try to encourage more red flag cases? Well, the people who passed this law obviously want to see it used to some extent. And so the state is putting pretty substantial money into promoting the law or, as they say, educating people about it. They're spending up to an estimated $300,000 a year to open up this hotline that you can call and get basic information and maybe a referral about where to go with like a red flag case. They're also spinning up this million-dollar awareness campaign about the state's gun laws in general. That'll be in Spanish and English. It's supposed to launch this month. So we'll see how that affects the use of these laws. Really informative, Andy. Thanks for this insight. Thanks for having me. That's CPR's Andrew Kenny explaining the state's expanded red flag law. You can find more of his work online at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. On the latest episode of Back From Broken, Colorado Public Radio's podcast about addiction and recovery, Katie Olawatoyan, who founded a support group called the Sober Black Girls Club, shares her story. A lot of us, honestly, every week, we just would cry because it was just, it was just life-changing. Your voice gets so hopeful when you talk about the club. Find Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts.
Supported in part by CU Anschutz. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. Let's introduce you now to a woman known as the Blind History Lady. Peggy Chong of Aurora has spent years digging into the stories of blind people in Colorado, including the challenges they've faced and the contributions they've made. She also has a remarkable and related backstory herself. She recently won a national grant to continue her efforts. She joins us now to tell us more about her ever-growing body of work. Peggy, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Chandra. I understand one of Colorado's governors was actually legally blind, and that would be Elias Ammons, who served from 1913 to 1915. That is correct. He contracted measles when he was a teenager, and when he recovered, one of the side effects from the measles was that his vision was becoming less and less. He wanted to be a newspaper man, but did not think that with his vision loss, he would be able to do that. So he went into ranching instead. And on his ranch, he was confronted with several issues that ranchers were dealing with, railroads coming through, cattle rustling, and all sorts of things. He was really good at getting up at meetings and speaking about what he thought was important for the ranchers, uh, addressing it with the current state legislators and so on. So his community elected him to be a state representative. Then he became a state senator. And then in 1913, he was elected governor of the state of Colorado. Now, how do you think his vision problems um, might have influenced some of the causes he took on and some of the things he accomplished? It wasn't until the last part of his life that he actually addressed vision issues. And that was probably because he did not know a lot of blind people at that time. When he became governor, that's when he really started to know of other blind persons. A man named of James Downing was elected to the State House of Representatives in 1916. The two of them also met Lute Wilcox, who was a blind man who ran his own magazine field and farm. He had a printing company, a public relations company, and they got together and started talking about the needs of the blind adults, those going blind later in life, who wanted to learn how to get back out into the, the job world, uh, needed additional techniques, learning how to read and write in an alternative format. And so it was when he joined up with other folks that he started to work on crafting state legislation that ultimately passed in 1918 that created a commission for the blind, created benefits that were across the board, the same for blind people. So it wasn't until later on. Most of his focus for many years was on equal rights for women. Uh, his sister was very active in women's movements and so on, and he took a lot of energy from her in that regard. Another person you've learned a lot about is Jenny Coward Jackson. She was instrumental in getting jobs for blind people in Colorado in the early 1900s. How did that come about? She was kind of a spitfire. Uh, she had <laughs> gone to the School for the Blind in Kansas and 
When she moved to Colorado uh, about 1903, she found basically a wasteland of services for blind people. There was nothing. So she started to seek out other blind people. They began working on legislation to start a workshop for the blind. It took a few years, but Colorado Industries for the Blind finally became a reality. She began teaching there. The people coming to Colorado Industries for the Blind had no skills at all. They were people being abandoned by their family or in poor houses. With her efforts demonstrating that she could teach, that she could get people ready for work outside of a workshop, she became the first traveling teacher for blind people in the state. She spent her wages on travel because she didn't have a travel budget. Uh, She spent her wages on purchasing slates and styluses, which is the equivalent of a pencil and, and paper for blind people. She started braille classes. She started weaving classes. Every one of her classes, she had them learn to read and write in New York Point. And there were no reading materials. So they would write up a essay or a short story. And they would pass it to the next one to correct it, but also to reinforce their reading. And they accumulated, if you will, their own little libraries in these reading groups. Wow. So you've done this research for many years and even picked up the nickname, which we alluded to in my intro, the Blind History Lady. Why do you think it's important to tell these stories? I grew up in the blind community. I had a mother who was uh, legally blind as well, and I have sisters who are blind as well. I knew the old rug weavers and the piano tuners and the door-to-door salesmen, and I felt sort of ashamed of them when I was a teenager because they were doing these low-level, low-pay jobs. And as a teenager in the blind community, I was beginning to meet blind lawyers and blind teachers and blind businessmen. And I did not understand why it was they were just taking these low-level jobs. But these were blind people that were supporting their families, raising children, sending them to college. They were groundbreaking at the time. And when I was in my late 20s, I was given a job to clean out the files at the Home for the Blind in Minnesota. It was closing. There were file cabinets and boxes of old records and letters and newsletters and and all kinds of things. While I was going through those files, I learned of our blind senator. I didn't know there was a blind senator from Minnesota. And that's what got me started. And once I learned how to do family genealogy, my research really expanded with what I now call our blind ancestors. Hmm. So it sounds like a lot of this for you was to inspire others who are who, do, who are visually impaired, but also to raise awareness for those outside of the community about the many contributions that uh, those who are blind have contributed to our society. Absolutely. When a person goes blind later in life, and most people go blind, you know, in their working years, they mm. think they're the only one who's ever been a blind 
banker or a blind judge or a blind business owner, and that is so not the case. When they go to many of the counselors, social workers, rehabilitation professionals, they are told, geez, I don't think a blind person's ever done that. Here, why don't you go into vending? Not that there's anything wrong with becoming a operator of a vending stand, but if you really did like to be a banker, why don't you go back to banking? And there have been blind bankers in this country. Mm. And the reason those rehab professionals don't tell you that is because they don't know. It's not taught in their college courses. We're studied for our medical conditions always, but we're rarely studied for what we have accomplished. To know our history is important to have role models. Well, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, you talked about being ashamed, you know, yourself, having your mother uh, being visually impaired. Can you tell us a little bit about depression and those feelings of embarrassment and anxiety in the community? You know, I want to be like everybody else. I want to be the same as my next door neighbor. I don't want to be considered the blind lady down the block I didn't want to be considered the blind mother when I had my child. I wanted to be considered my daughter's mother. I wanted mm. to be considered as the person who showed up and worked for the parent-teacher association. I wanted to be considered a valuable part of my community. And because we don't have role models and we don't have people to teach us some of these cute little skills um, that help you to mix or help you to get into a, a sighted crowd. It's really hard and it's difficult to feel like you're wanted. I had a blind man who told me one time, I was telling him how I was having difficulty navigating the PTA meeting. And he said, well, what I do is I get a cup of coffee and I start walking around and people start talking to you right away because they don't want you to spill that cup of coffee on them. So they start <laughs> talking to you and wanting to have you find a chair. And that's when you say, oh, that's okay. I don't mind standing in. Who are you? And it really did help. Just that little icebreaker. Yeah, and I, I think this is important because I think sometimes, just in any community, you sometimes forget about, you know, things like people who may be the only or the first in a situation, someone who is different. And thank you for, you know, kind of putting that on the radar for us. So you recently won the Balatin Award from the National Federation of the Blind. It's a $5,000 award that goes to individuals who are considered a positive force in the lives of blind people. What will that award allow you to do? I'm excited. I have found a Harmon Foundation project in the Library of Congress files that awarded blind people a financial award. I don't know a lot about this award, uh, but it was from 1928 to 1932. What was interesting to me about this foundation is that it primarily focused on promoting black artists. And why did they switch to blind folks and many of them whose names I do recognize in the list of people they considered for the awards were white. So I have all these questions. I'm hoping to find in these files biographies, 
um, the careers that some of these folks had, maybe even some photographs. That would be terrific if there's some that still exist. And tell those stories because these people were not the Helen Kellers or the Stevie Wonders or the Ray Charles. These Mm. were broom makers. These were people who made a living selling rugs, who taught piano to the neighborhood kids. So what was the criteria? I don't know. And I'm very excited to find out. Wow, sounds like you have a lot of work to do, but uh, we'll have to hear what you come up with. I'd love to share. (laughs) So historians have to trek through lots of records and you are legally blind yourself. How have you navigated this work? You know, everything is not on the web. A lot of it is in boxes in basements and are Mm. being forgotten. Like the records that we had here in Colorado. They were in handwritten form. Uh, Some of them were moldy. Uh, Some of them, the ink had bled. Some of them were um, faded, water damaged. What we did with those records, because I couldn't read most of that stuff, we digitized all of those records. So we created a digital file, but that does not mean that they're accessible. We had each of those records scanned with optical character recognition, and even the old files that were typed, the files do not allow you to grab hold of that text because it's in an old font not recognized by the optical character recognition. So thanks to COVID, um, there's some good things did come out of COVID. We were able to recruit more than 100 volunteers who took an enormous amount of time and re-entered all of those into a word or text file so that a screen reader or a braille translation program could access the actual text and convert it into either audio or braille output. So that's Mm. one way of doing it. I make a lot of phone calls and I sometimes have to make a few donations to uh, genealogical (laughs) societies or museums to go out and do some little legwork for me and send me back a file or two. It sounds like what you did is created access, which was the key word there. It's creating more access to people, yourself included. And those files are now accessible to anybody even if you don't live in the United States, as we are putting them up on the Colorado Virtual Library that can be accessed from their website. Historically, how would you say Colorado has ranked compared to other states in terms of the rights and the services available to blind people? Kind of depends on the time frame or what issue you're focusing on. We had a school for the blind earlier than some states. However, we didn't have any adult services of any consequence really until about the 1940s. Blind people were organized here in Colorado, met and shared ideas, acted as their own social services and their own agency, but had limited resources to do that. The blind people were from other parts of the country and brought into that collective, the names, addresses of other blind people from out of the state that they could call on and say, hey, tell me about that law that you guys just got passed. That's how Mm -hmm. our first white cane law uh, got passed is because 
we borrowed that from California. Yeah, what is a white cane law? The white cane law allows a blind person to travel independently without the fear of being told if an accident happens, you shouldn't have been out there anyway. It says Mm. to the driver that when you see a white cane, you're supposed to slow down and yield. It provides protection that if you're hit by a car that you still do have the right if that person was impaired as a driver or driving recklessly that you still have the right to sue that person or have charges brought against them rather than saying well you know the blind person shouldn't been out in the road anyway which still happens from time to time what are a couple of needs for the blind community now here in colorado well transportation is always a big issue we have a really large metropolitan issue but also getting to other parts of the state Uh, It's very difficult to get to the western slopes if you're a blind person and you do not have a car. I think we still need to have a lot of education amongst the blind community, amongst employers, amongst legislators, that blind people are capable of doing every job out there, uh, um, just about every job, and that we should be given a chance, that we should not be just passed on because we're a blind person because you don't think you could as a blind person. It matters that we think we can as a blind person, and we should be given the chance to demonstrate whether we can or cannot do the job. Peggy, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. That was Peggy Chung of Aurora, known to many here in Colorado as the Blind History Lady. She has spent years digging into the stories and contributions of the visually impaired. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. Great classical music to keep you company through the night. It's night music on Colorado Public Radio. For a list of the music we're playing tonight, visit us online at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado's narrow, winding mountain roads are beautiful to drive, especially in the summer and fall, but they can be dangerous for both drivers and cyclists alike. CPR's Dan Boyce looked into ideas and laws to stay safe while driving near cyclists or biking near drivers. Kristen McCammon, like a lot of us, knows the situation all too well. You're driving down steep mountain passes. The cars are backed up behind you. Everyone seems impatient. The road's skinny and twisting. And then you come up behind a road biker. I feel like if I try to pass them, that's when somebody's going to come around a blind curve that I can't see. Worst case scenario. Okay, I'm going to get hit head on. And then. I'm also going to like hit this bicyclist and they're going to go off the side of the road. Or maybe it's just more mundane feelings of social pressure. Everybody behind me is so mad at me that I'm not passing this person. Because of me, I'm backing up this whole line of traffic because I'm too scared to pass the cyclist. 
This anxiety inspired the Littleton resident to ask, What's the proper etiquette as a car driver when encountering cyclists on curvy mountain roads? And why are they there? It's dangerous. That's the grand old question. This is Keith Stefanik. Chief Engineer for CDOT. CDOT, the Colorado Department of Transportation. And Stefanik, he's a cyclist himself. He bike commutes three quarters of the year. On the weekends, I enjoy getting out and doing some recreational cycling up in the mountains. He mentions, first off, bicyclists are legal road users. They are allowed to be on those roads just as much as a car. There are exceptions, like long stretches of I-70 and I-25, where bikes are prohibited. But there are exceptions. Bikes are good everywhere else. And there are both legal protocols and ethical guidelines regarding the meeting of cyclists and vehicles. Legislators amended state law in 2009 to say motorists legally must give cyclists a three-foot buffer zone all around them when passing. There's some that'll cut into that three-foot buffer line, and I know when they do, I can feel it. I get a little bit of anxiety in myself. However, in return for drivers... You're allowed to cross the yellow line, double yellow line, to get around that cyclist. But you need to do it in a safe manner. Now, let's talk the cyclist's responsibilities. Just finished uh, a good set of intervals this morning. Justin Martin is a professional mountain and gravel bike racer living in Colorado Springs, and he does a lot of that mountain road cycling to train. Yeah, I mean, all the time. He says road bikers should always ride with traffic. Hug the right side as, as much as you can. Close to the road's edge line. State guidance says groups of riders should ride single file, Though Martin says sometimes he and his partners do ride side by side. When we need to work through a piece of road where it's a tighter spot for cars, we try to slot back in a single file. But when we're riding to a breast, we're really just trying to be more visible to cars. We want to be closer to the shape of a car. He also suggests riders use bright taillights even in the day. How satisfied are you to hear that series of answers? I'm satisfied. I... It's about what I would have expected. I was surprised by the three-foot rule. McCammon says she wishes some of those high mountain passes would prohibit cyclists during peak travel times. And she says she's surprised more cyclists don't pull over to let cars pass. Yeah, I would say that would be the courteous thing to do. Though that's not always easy to do. Cyclist Justin Martin says he gets the frustration. The last thing we want is a, is a line full of cars waiting to, to get around cyclists because that's just going to upset for more and more drivers. Ultimately, for everyone, drivers and riders, McCammon and Martin agree, be nice and remember. We're just, uh, just asking for a little bit of space, that's all. Patience is a virtue. Dan Boyce, CPR News. This story is part of our series, Colorado Wonders, where we answer listener questions about all things Colorado. Ask your own question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. When we come back, we'll further explore the culture of bicycling and the effort to make it more inclusive. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Indy 1023 presents Divinae Feminae, starring Lido Pimienta. Feminai with Katiria and Lolita. Friday, September 29th at Levitt Pavilion. Open to the public, no tickets needed. More info at Indy1023.org.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Before the break, we answered a Colorado Wonders question about what drivers and cyclists can do to stay safe on the state's many mountain roads. Of course, safety is just one aspect of bicycling. I visited a nonprofit bike shop earlier this summer called Bikes Together. It's a place for people who want to get into riding but don't know where to start. Maha Perez is a volunteer board member, and Mac Lyman works at the shop as a bike mechanic. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, thanks for coming to visit. How did each of you get into biking? Maha? (laughs) You know, I, I saw these cool kids riding bikes on the streets, and I wanted a bike. I bought this uh, vintage road bike that was a little too big for me, but I started riding around in my community and started connecting with people, and that's actually how I started uh, my career in nonprofits. I really enjoyed it. I love working with community. I love working with volunteers and just connecting with people through this really simple machine that is just uh, all-empowering. I'm just picturing you on that big bike. (laughs) So what about you, Mac? My parents taught me to ride a bike when I was really little, so I had that lucky experience, and then kind of fell into a friend group that was really using bikes. And how I started learning bicycle mechanics was purely an accident. It was a way to get to know people. I lived in a space that had a lot of bicycle tools. Our neighbors knew that we had them and started coming by asking for help. So I I was inspired to learn. I wanted to have an answer to the questions people were asking. All right, you're making me kind of rack my brain and think about how I got into biking uh, as a kid, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, well, I was super girly mm-hmm. and really into more like the dolls and all that kind of thing. And there was a tomboy in my neighborhood. I think we cut a deal where she was going to teach me how to ride a bike. So that's how I got into it. So we put a call out for bike questions, and we got a pretty good mix of topics. So let's just jump right in. Great. So a person who goes by The Skipper on Twitter shared an experience. They said, I got a bike last year. I went to a bike shop for tire change stuff and expected that people would help me, show me the ropes, and it didn't feel like my space. Do you hear that a lot from people who come in here? Do you find there's a crowd who needs more hands-on help and might be a little intimidated? Yes, those are experiences that I've had, even as someone who's been a bicycle mechanic for 20 years, I still go into a bike shop and sometimes find that it's hard to find somebody who has the time and ability to answer questions thoroughly. It's a tough industry, so I have um, compassion for people who are running bike shops trying to figure out a way to make it work. And I think that it's an industry, both the mechanics culture and the cycling culture, that's been really exclusive. And people often feel like they have to walk in and look a certain way, act Mm. a certain way, know a certain amount of information or technical knowledge. And that ends up being a kind of a snowball effect of people feel like they have to say a lot of jargon when they go in, so they do. (laughs) And then other people don't want to call them on uh, or correct them, and so it becomes kind of a reinforcing culture of exclusivity and competition. Maha, you want to add to that? Yeah, you know, I, I think people generally, when they see a bike shop, they just think it's a bike shop and there's this transactional thing going on, but community bike shops I've worked in 
most of the people just stumble in and they're like, oh, it's a bike shop. But then we tell them it's more than a bike shop and they get really excited about the different programs that we have. Well, one example is you also offer time with the bike mechanic at a pay what you can rate and you recycle bikes, recovering parts that could go to landfills. Yeah, that's a huge part of what we what we do here is we feel like we're able to provide an opportunity where people can get affordable repairs using used parts and recycled parts and also learn along the way. Well, what's an adjustment or two that you think bike shops or bike groups can make to help make people feel more welcome and supported when they show up? You know, for me, I think like as someone who's a woman of color, When I was starting out in my bicycle journey, I always just felt intimidated going into bike shops Mm. because there's a certain demographic uh, that is really geared towards it, no pun intended. Uh, (laughs) Catch that now. (laughs) And and, and I think it's really just great having all of these other different pockets of bicycle communities where you can really connect with other people outside of just, you know, kind of like what a bicyclist should generally look like. I think that it would be great if shops, more bike shops have the capacity to really explain to people why they're not making the repairs or what the cost is. Some of the realities of the industry is that a lot of the bikes that are produced and sold in the United States and through the pandemic are very, very low quality. In fact, were not even made to be repaired. Um, So... I think that's an experience a lot of people have had where they got a bike, tried to get it repaired, and learned that it couldn't be repaired. But the reality is it's because it could not be repaired. The actual metal parts of the the bike have started to pull apart, or it was um, kind of what we call built to fail with a very, very short intended lifespan. I wish that more people had that information so that they can avoid those products to begin with, but also understand that if they're not able to fix some, if they're not able to get help with their bike, they're not treated as if they made a bad choice. It's just, mm. this, is, this is a big part of the industry is these bikes being around and helping people find alternatives to those bicycles, something that can actually be repaired and that's something you yourself can, can repair with a little bit of support. Sounds like a no judgment zone is where you're trying to go with this shop Mm -hmm. to make people feel comfortable and open to ask those questions and to educate themselves about the bikes. Mm -hmm. So biking can be fun for exercise or for more practical purposes like getting to work or school. Someone named Rob asked us, how might we better illustrate that bikes are not just for recreation but a legitimate means of transportation? What do you think about that, Mac? There's no doubt that most of our culture and how our cities are built and where we put our money um, it supports driving and cars. But I think the more people see themselves on bikes, see each other on bikes, ride together, have fun doing that, I think that opens up the possibility to consider using bikes for transportation as well. Certainly having infrastructure around places to safely store bicycles, those things will help a lot. Now, we learned an unusual word from a response to our call out on Twitter. The word is quaxing. Not to put you on the spot, either of you, but do you know what that means? Quaxing. I don't know. How is it spelled? Like a Gen Z word? (laughs) Q-U-A-X-I-N-G. I don't know. From what we've learned, it means transporting something unusual awkward or unlikely using public transport or a bike. Oh, or a bike. I've been able to carry 
home appliances on my bicycle. I do all my grocery Whoa. shopping. You can carry people. You Impressive. can use trailers. And um, the bike actually can carry a tremendous amount. And I think that word underscores Rob's question about the various ways people may want to use a bike. E-bikes have become a lot more common, sometimes for transporting people or stuff. Mm -hmm. Can you help give us a little primer on e-bikes? Um, just in my research, they seem really expensive. Are all e-bikes e expensive? Well, an e-bike, because it has a, a battery and a motor, is going to cost more than a pedal-powered bicycle. And much like a pedal-powered bicycle, there's a really wide range in price. Um, but to be honest, they do. You, the, the more you pay, the more likely you are to have something that's going to last longer, hold mm. up better, and be more repairable over time. So we are seeing that that is true with e-bikes as well. For Denver residents and soon state residents, I encourage people to look into e-bike rebate programs. I think this is an example of trying to put um, public dollars into supporting people and getting these types of vehicles, if, if that's something that's useful to you. Well, Maha, who should consider an e-bike, and what would you say they're best used for? People with children. I see a lot of parents, you know, riding and picking up their children. Hmm. People who may have limited mobility, but, you know, may not have other means of transportation. I could see it work really well for people who need to travel long distances. So, yeah, there's great benefit in e-bikes. Now, one of the hardest things about getting into any new activity is understanding the etiquette and, quote, normal way of doing things. Now, Kelsey told us, I would like clarification on the laws governing bike lanes. Are they one way? Can you ride scooters? And I'd add to that, can you ride e-bikes in the bike lanes? Oh, no, <laughs> this is one of those things where the laws have changed a lot in recent years, y'all. So this is a thing you have to look up. But my understanding is that in Denver, it is yeah, it's directional with the car traffic, unless otherwise noted. You do not have to be in a bike lane as a bike. You can ride wherever it is safe for you to ride, although you're not supposed to be riding on the sidewalks. Those are meant to be for pedestrians only mm. or people using wheelchairs. And then as far as e-bikes, e-scooters, those vehicles are all allowed in bike lanes. There are some mile per hour restrictions. I believe you have to be under certain speed limit in order to be on a lot of those bike paths, um, just to make sure that everyone can safely share them since people are gonna be going at different, different speeds. They do check too. I've rode on the bike path and my friends, they were going over 15 and they were stopped. Oh, wow. Are you serious? Yeah, I don't remember if it was wow. the park ranger, but yes, uh, they, they told them, you have to slow down. Well, I think both drivers and cyclists can be confused about the new types of bike lanes or paths we see on the street. Is there something you wish drivers knew when it comes to biking right of way? Bicycle Colorado is actually launching a, an online education series for drivers to educate drivers more about cyclists and mm. some of that etiquette. So I encourage people to look that up, Bicycle Colorado. Um, yeah, as someone who's a, a cyclist, I would say maybe two big takeaways for motorists. You know, if, if you're acting predictably on the road, that's a good bet. We see a lot of people make U-turns in neighborhoods that they shouldn't be. And, uh, you know, I've hear, heard stories about people who have, you know, been hit because they didn't see that cyclist. Another one is when you are parked and you are about to open your door on the street, be sure to look 
behind you as well because we are pretty quiet and we can be pretty fast and nimble, but we don't know what you're doing. Unfortunately, as biking picked up in 2020 and 2021, so did accidents involving cyclists. So Hillary asked us this question, how do we promote cycling while people's fear of dying while cycling is not unwarranted? Either of you wanna jump in on that? Yeah, it's huge and it's scary. We've lost some friends in the last year to vehicle accidents with bicycles. There are more ways to prioritize the safety of pedestrians and cyclists over the convenience of cars. So Maha, how do you start to talk to people about the risks of cycling while also wanting to encourage people to give it a try? It's, uh, it's an open conversation. I don't know. Um, it it's usually just comes in in spaces like these. I try not to, <laughs> to force my, uh, my love for bikes on people, but um, I, I think this is uh, why like, places like Bikes Together is such a great space for people to just talk about that and learn from each other. Amy Kay told us, what I love about bike culture is that there are so many ways to express yourself. It's not just spandex anymore. Will either of you show me your bikes? Of course. <laughs> so I follow Maha outside and they roll out a black pedal bike. This is my bike. I, all I had was a road bike and I needed a commuter and something for the rain and the snow. Yes. And this, <laughs> this was the bike. It's quite lovely. It's also been, um, it's been through a little bit. Uh, it's used, but you know, along the way, I've uh, added a few things here and there. Uh, these fancy blue spokes. So blue, I, favorite color? No, it's you know what? It, it, no, not really. <laughs> uh, it just happened to match my cage, my um, my water bottle cage. Thank oh, you. Oh, how cool! And my, my bike is black. And I had a matching black fork. And one of my mechanics friends found this really cool chrome fork. We had it cut down to size. And I just, I actually love the way it looks now with this uh, chrome fork uh, with an all black bike. Yeah, it's kind of decorative. And I guess it's sort of like every little piece reminds you of something. Yes, uh, yeah, every, uh, we've been through a lot together, me and this bike. And uh, you know, every little iteration is a story. We have to ring the bell. <laughs> That's a requirement. Oh, yeah. Are you ready? <laughs> awesome. Maha Perez and Mac Lyman are with Bikes Together, a nonprofit in Denver. We spoke in June. You may take the interactive driving course they mentioned at bicyclecolorado.org. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.